I'll be reading from the book of Matthew, chapter 25, verses 31 through 40. When the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty or give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did, you see, when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these of my brothers, you did it to me. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thank you very much, Chad. Again, good morning, Arcadia. How you doing? That's a little better. Good for you. So uh, the uh, ancient Greek historian Herodotus, also known to some people as Herod Otis, <laughs> I am the king of cheese. There really was a guy named Herodotus 2,600 years ago. Anyway, he wrote that uh, the seven stages of life for a man uh, there, there are seven stages of life for me. I'm really screwing this up, I'm telling you. Anyway, there are seven stages of life for a man, and that stage number seven starts when he turns 57, and yesterday I turned 57. So I am not, no, don't, I didn't do that for a clap. I'm here to tell you that I am, I am not teeing off on the back nine anymore. I'm putting on 17. That's essentially what you got now. And, uh, but I, I, I was told on Thursday, however, uh, this made me feel better. Somebody said, well, don't worry, 57 is the new 52. So everything was way better than that. All right, we are in our um, four-week series on uh, Lent, and we looked the first week. Cody took us through the idea of fasting, and we've been fasting on um, Tuesdays. And then uh, we talked last week about prayer, and so we added the, uh, the uh, Lord, what's called the Lord's Prayer to the fast on on Tuesdays, and today we're going to talk about almsgiving. So right now I want everybody to get up and go put checks in the giving. Never mind, I'm kidding. All right, so what we're going to do is something a little bit different today, kind of unusual, especially if you're familiar with Redemption Church and how we do things. We usually like to take a text and walk through it because we're usually in the middle of a book and we're walking through the book verse by verse. And in fact, um, after Easter, we are going to be uh, walking through the book of Titus. We're going to take eight weeks and go verse by verse through the book of Titus, which is normally how we do things around here. But today we're going to take a topic and we're going to look at it topically. We're going to look at generosity or almsgiving, and we're going to look at it through a, a biblical lens. So we're going to, this is going to be a comprehensive message about almsgiving and generosity. So we're going to use uh, several verses and passages out of both the Old Testament and the New Testament to sort of weave together a story about almsgiving. So the first thing that we should do, I think, is define what we mean by almsgiving. So a lot of people are like, that's a very churchy and pious word. I don't even know what you mean. So the word alms, A-L-M-S, is, is a condensed form of a Greek word that means kindness, charity, or assistance. So Almsgiving is obviously giving kindness, charity, or assistance to those who 
are in need. One scholar, Gary LaRiviere, describes it this way. Almsgiving is any material favor done to assist the needy and prompted by charity. And that leads perfectly into what I would say is our big idea, although we're going to unpack what almsgiving means to us, uh, the first thing that we have to establish is right up front that Jesus is the ultimate almsgiver. He was the ultimate almsgiver. And, and, and I'm just going to give you the close up front. Uh, ordinarily, I might wait till the end to, to have this part of the message, but I'm just going to give it to you right up front. The single greatest act ever of almsgiving is Jesus on the cross. Nothing that you and I could ever do would compare to that. And the reason is because there has never been anyone as needy as all of us. And what our need is for is not necessarily wealth or food or creature comforts or transportation or shelter, although those things are needs. I'm not denying that they aren't needs. But what we need more than anything, more than those things, is we need to be reconciled to God because our sin has separated us from God. We were born into this condition. Uh, nothing we could do about that, and there's nothing we can do about that condition now that we're aware of it. We can't work hard to get close to God. We can't close the gap ourselves. The only way that we are reconciled to God is through the sacrificial giving of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection. So the ultimate almsgiver is Jesus Christ, and it is therefore out of his giving to us great mercy uh, through his grace and his love that now we go out and in joyous and gracious response to what he's done for us, we are now able to look at the world in a different way, see the needs of the world, and we can also become givers as well. And one of the most interesting things about Jesus being the almsgiver that we have to remember is that it's something that you and I never really asked for. And it's something that you and I don't deserve of our own merit. Jesus just did this for us. He knows what our need is, even if we don't recognize it, and that is a need to be reconciled to the Father because of our sin, and so he went and did this for us on the cross. He suffered that humiliating death, that excruciating death on the cross, and was raised to newness of life just so that you and I could be, and it is nothing that you and I can do or have done that enables us to do that. It is all him. And we just receive this amazing gift, this great gift of alms that he has given us. Now, it's interesting that even before Jesus was born, the principle of almsgiving was instituted in the life of God's people in the Mosaic Law very early on after the Exodus as God is giving the law to Moses. And it's in Leviticus that we find this. It's in Leviticus 19, verses 9 through 10. In fact, I would tell you, this may be a little goofy for some of you who've read Leviticus. It's, it's, it's a tough slug. I'll tell you that right now. But Leviticus 19 is one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. It is so good and so deep. And right in the middle of it, God says this, when you, my people, God's people, when you reap the harvest of your land, when you have income, when you're working and you're getting paid, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. In other words, if you have 10 acres, you're going to reap not quite to the to the property lines of your property, you're going to leave a little bit on the edges of your property unreaped, in other words, unharvested. 
And the reason you're going to do that is because there are going to be people who are outside of your property, outside of your family, who are even outside of the people of God who are going to come along and they're going to be needy. They're going to be sojourners and they're going to be the fatherless and they're going to be widows and they're going to be the poor and the under-resourced and they're going to need help. And so they would come along and they would be allowed to reap what's left on the edges of your harvest, of your fields. So he says, I don't want you to reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. What that means is, as you go through your fields the very first time, no matter how meticulous and how clean and how good you are at harvesting your field, you're going to leave some behind. You're not going to be able to get 100% of your harvest. And so what he says is, instead of going back through, which most people would do, he says, don't go back through. Instead, leave that also for people to come and glean themselves and take from that. Generally, what God is saying is about 10% of your harvest you need to leave for somebody else. And then he, he says, look, maybe you don't have fields, maybe you have vineyards. So he's, he's including everybody in this. So now he moves from the people who have fields to the people who have vineyards who are doing grapes. And he says, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes in your vineyard. So you might walk through and if the grapes fall and you didn't catch them as you're picking them, instead of picking them up and putting them in the basket, you would just leave them again for the sojourner, for the poor, for the under-resourced. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Now, this is fascinating. This last little bit, I am the Lord your God, most people read that, and what they read into that is God saying, I'm in charge here, you just do what I say. But that is not at all what God is saying by saying, I'm the Lord your God. Instead, what he's saying is he's saying, remember how I brought you up out of your slavery out of Egypt? Remember how I saved you? Remember how I graciously delivered you? Remember how when you cried out, in your need and your distress, I responded. Do you remember that? Well, because I have given you the gift of deliverance and have brought you into this promised land, now it is going to be an act of worshiping me that you would do this, that you would not glean up to the edges of your fields, that you would not pick up the grapes that have been dropped. As an act of worshiping me, you are going to give to those who are in need. So you can see God's heart in the midst of all of this. He's not a harsh taskmaster saying, do this or else. Instead, he's saying, I have a heart in this, and I have a heart for all people, and I want you to have a heart for all people as well. But let's go back even further and start with creation and see where this all got started and where it all got really messed up. If you look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, the very beginning of the creation story, you see towards the end of creation on the sixth day, God's done everything else, and now we get to these two verses. And then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish. I'm going to come back and talk about that word dominion. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Remember, this is before sin, so creeping things were not bad or annoying prior to the entrance of sin into the human condition. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So God is going to create the the crowning achievement of his creation. Paul calls this God's masterpiece in Ephesians chapter 2. And he's going to give us dominion. 
Now, this is before the curse of original sin. This is before the fall that takes place in Genesis 3. And he gives human beings dominion over everything else. We struggle with that English word dominion because most of us, when we hear dominion, we default to dominance or domination, and that is not what it means. The Hebrew word translated dominion literally means care, stewardship, and culture-making. In other words, it's one of the ways that generosity is expressed and manifested. In the original created order, there was generosity and no greed, no envy, no selfishness. There was nothing but generosity. It was the assumed norm. And there was no need in the original created order because there was not yet sin introduced into the human condition. There was no need to be selfish or to hoard we, we wouldn't have the show Hoarders on television if it weren't for original sin. There, there is no need to think of self first and to think of self only. But then Genesis 3 happened. Genesis 3, the man and the woman are in the garden, working the garden that God has given them. Everything is perfect. It's paradise. And the serpent comes and deceives them, gets them to rebel against God, against the one command that he gave them. Don't eat of that one fruit, that one tree way over there. Don't eat of that fruit. And they do it anyway. And, and, and sin enters the human condition. There is rebellion. And so now we are living in a fallen and corrupt world. The created order has become disordered by sin and everything is affected. And God then says, here are the curses that are going to come as a result of this disobedience by Adam and Eve. And he first curses the serpent for doing what he does. And then he curses the woman. And then he curses the man. And these curses are not specific and only curses, but rather they are curses that are representative of the general fallenness and corruption that we live in in this world. All you have to do is look around at the world we live in. Every generation can do this and say, there's something not right. There's something wrong. And what it is is this original sin. And so it's the curse. So let me read to you what the man's curse is, which is representative of curses for all of us here. It's the third of the curses, and it comes in verses 17 through 19 of chapter 3. And God, God said to Adam, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. So now, this joyous, rewarding, culture-making, generous, uh, enjoyable work that they were doing in the garden, it now becomes labor. It becomes toilsome, and it becomes hard. And so rather than generosity, we now have greed, envy, and possessiveness. Those things enter the human condition because of the sin. Generosity is gone. Now we have greed and envy, possessiveness, jealousness. And I know we hate, to see, to, we hate to hear this, but aren't we greedy? And aren't we possessive? And aren't we envious? And aren't we jealous? You see, because work is hard now, 
it has become difficult to separate ourselves from that which we have earned and that which we deserved. Prior to Genesis 3 and original sin, those words were not in the vocabulary of humans. Deserved, earned, none of that stuff was necessary. And by the way, let me just stop and throw this in here. This is why the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is so countercultural and so difficult for so many people to understand. Because what Jesus gives to us is given out of his love and grace and mercy for us, and it has nothing to do with what we've earned and what we deserve. Nothing. There is not one thing that you and I can do to make ourselves more deserving or more worthy before God. He just loves us and gives us this gift of salvation. And that blows our minds because every other paradigm in our life is about working hard, earning, and deserving. And so the curse brings hard work. We earn our living by the sweat of our brow. We eat dirt in order to experience gain. And so what I've gotten is mine. And it's difficult to get to, for us to be able to separate ourselves from that. You, you've been waiting to close this deal for 18 months, and there's a big payout at the end. And you keep telling God, oh, it's going to be amazing when I get this big check when we close the deal, what I'm going to do with all this money. And then the deal closes, and you get the check, and what happens? Uh, oh, what if I don't close another deal for a while? And we begin to think, I worked really hard for this, and I deserve this. We're that way with our paychecks as well. I earned this. I deserve this. Nobody's going to take this away from me. And I will tell you, that's understandable. It's understandable that we would feel that way and behave that way. Generosity was the assumed norm before sin entered the picture. But now, greed is the curse that we live under. And let me tell you something. This curse is really tricky. It's really tricky, and we need to understand it. And it's, it's about to get very thick up in here right now. So just hang in there with me on this. But this is really important for us to understand. There is an assumption in our culture. I read about it all the time. I teach uh, uh, communication in colleges. I hear about it all the time. I, I am just constantly barraged with this message. The assumption in our culture is that there's really no such thing as a poor person, an under-resourced person, or a disadvantaged person who is also greedy. The assumption, the accusation even, is that greed only resides with wealthy people and that that's why they're wealthy. It's because they are greedy. Now, if you're somebody who has that presupposition, that worldview, you could not be more wrong and you could not have a bigger misunderstanding of what human nature is really like. Now, let me ask you this question in the midst of this. Are there greedy rich people? Certainly. Certainly there are. It, was greed a part of what made them wealthy? Possibly. Even in some cases, I would say probably. But there are also many, many wealthy people who have big hearts of generosity. And frankly, without those wealthy people who had a good idea and know how to manage finances and know how to run things, without those people, we wouldn't have as many people blessed as they are, as many people as employed as they are. We would not have what we have without those people who also do that. Just because somebody is wealthy doesn't mean they're greedy. 
They, they may have the greatest uh, hearts of, of generosity and compassion that you can ever see. Here's the tougher question for many of us. Are there greedy poor people? Are there greedy under-resourced people? Are there greedy people who are down on their luck? And the answer is absolutely. No class of person escapes this curse. In fact, for many poor under-resourced people, it is their greed that has led them into this circumstance that they are in. And the reason for that is that, (coughs) excuse me, our understanding of greed is not comprehensive enough. Most of us hear greed, and what we think is just very simply lust for wealth, unbridled desire and lust for wealth. But greed is also a vice that leads to massive amounts of foolish thought and behavior by many people. Being poor is not a guarantee of unimpeachable character. Being poor is not a guarantee of unimpeachable character. And being well-off is not a guarantee of impeachable character. Let me tell you two stories, both about under-resourced people. Both happened more than five years ago, so they don't involve anybody from this community. And in spite of the fact that, uh, 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 that, I, that I won't give you clear details, like the names of the people, I want you to know I have intimate knowledge of both of these situations. I was on the inside of both of these situations, though not directly involved. So the first situation is a guy in his 30s, married, couple kids. Uh, this guy never was able to make ends meet, it seems like. He was always short. He always had a hard luck story. He was always paying his mortgage two or three months in arrears. He always had a story about how uh, APS or Salt River Project was going to shut down his electricity. And, and he had a good job. At least it seemed like he had a good job. He, he, he worked in an office. He was a professional. He wore a, wore a tie to work. I mean, the guy was, he seemed like he had a, a, a really good job. But he always had this hard luck story. He was always behind, always in trouble. So another guy got connected with this guy and began to help him. And he helped him over the course of about four and a half or five years. And during that time, he gave this guy more than $6,000 in cash and in addition helped him and his family in many other ways. Gave him some furniture, would give him groceries or grocery cards. Even one time he bought him a brand new computer. And others in this guy's community were also helping him. So it wasn't just this one person who was helping him, but he, was, he had other people helping him as well. Come to find out, after a little bit of investigation, the guy had a pretty good uh, front going. He, he had a nice job, but he was earning a, a regular paycheck, and everything would have been fine if he would have just learned contentment and been satisfied with that. The problem is, is that behind the scenes, He was always working some new get-rich-quick scheme. Some new scheme. I I know a guy in Argentina, and we're going to send stuff down there. He's going to send it back, and we're going to do this, and 300% profit. We're going to buy computer parts. We're going to flip them, we're going to dip them, and then we're going to sell them to this guy over here, and it's going to make us all this money. And the money's just going to be pouring in. It's going to be easy money. He's always got this story. The problem is is that his get-rich-quick schemes needed money needed a lot of investment. This was a guy who was under-resourced. You might call him poor, but he was greedy. And he was taking advantage of other people as a result of that, and he was making life miserable for his family, frankly. 
So finally, this guy figured this out, and he decided, I'm not going to help you anymore. You're on your own. And of course, the response was, well, you're not really a Christian, and you don't really have a good heart, and blah, 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 blah. Listen to what Proverbs 28 says. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. A faithful man will abound with blessings, but whoever hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. Proverbs 13 says this, Wealth gained hastily, in other words, quickly, will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. Uh, This verse in particular gives us the biblical metaphor of the steady plotter. The Bible tells us that when it comes to finances and money and work, that you and I, what God calls us to be, is a steady plotter. And really, it's, it's a horse metaphor. So he, God is saying, if you're a horse, what you should be is a plow horse. Don't try to be a racehorse. Because a racehorse might be a flash in the pan, might have some success like that, but then is put out to pasture. What you need to be is a plow horse, a plow horse that gets up every morning and goes and works the field diligently, persistently, constantly, works, 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 little by little, but keeps gathering and gaining through this consistent, faithful, persevering work. You are to be a plow horse. Now, what's the problem with this metaphor for us? Most of us don't look at ourselves as plow horses. We look at ourselves and we go, look at me, man. I'm a racehorse, not a plow horse. You take that plow horse stuff somewhere else. I'm a racehorse. And then you're off to the races and you're off to nothing but trouble. Embrace being a steady plotter. Embrace being the plow horse. 1 Timothy 6, Paul writes this, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin. Are we saying that wealth is a bad thing? Absolutely not. But if it's your God, if it's your idol, it's going to bring you misery. It will. Here's the next story. It's a woman. I know this woman quite well. At the time, in her 50s, she lost her husband. She became a widow. He didn't leave her anything. But really what he left her was some some unpaid medical bills, really didn't have uh, much money. And so now she's in her 50s, a widow. She's got to figure out how to make some money and how to do life. So she's got Social Security coming in. That's one thing. And then she she has a limited skill set, and so she works part-time, mostly odd jobs. But this woman's a hard worker. And she has a wonderful spirit. She never complains about anything. I, I would watch her at times. She'd go to work and she'd pull out her little hot pocket microwave deal and put that into the microwave for lunch. That's what she would do for lunch while we're all going out to Postino's or the Vig or whatever. And she didn't complain. She was happy with that. She just trusted God and did her best to make it work. Well, there was a pastor who knew of her and knew her. Now, I wanted to make clear, this is a pastor on a pastor's salary, okay? Knew of her, knew of her uh, situation, 
And he and his wife began over the course of about six years to just occasionally push cash towards her anonymously. She had no idea where this money was coming from. And over the course of about six years, they were able to push about $4,000 to this woman. And it was always interesting when she'd get some of this money and she would remark about how, I don't know who's doing this, but it's funny how the money always seems to come in just at the right time. When I need uh, something for my car or I'm out of grocery money, whatever it is, it just, God is so good. She kept attributing it to God is so good, so good, so good. And she would talk about what a blessing it was that people were looking out for her and that God was looking out for her. Deuteronomy 27 says this, Cursed to be anyone who perverts the justice due the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And all the people shall say amen. James chapter 1 says this, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Psalm 146, The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked, he brings to ruin. It's kind of tricky, isn't it? You see, it's more than just getting a memo from the pastor or trying to read the Bible as a bullet point way to figure out when you give and when you don't give. It's tricky. And then it gets even more tricky when I introduce Psalm 41 into into the mix. Psalm 41 verse 1 says this, Blessed is the one who considers the poor. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. That Hebrew word translated consider literally means to look at, to understand, to help, and to instruct. And to instruct. In other words, when we consider giving alms, we cannot simply give in to every request without some wisdom and work. And that means relationship. That means relationship. I remember Sean Myers, uh, a couple of years ago, preached on this very thing. He said, you know, it's easy to love from far away. What's more difficult is to love up close in relationship. But that's exactly what the gospel calls us to do. This book, God's Word, is not just a manual for how to live life, but more than that, It is a book that leads us into relationship with God and therefore relationship, meaningful relationship with others where we can apply wisdom and work and community and we can know each other and yes, this means being in each other's messes and we know when to help and we know when to instruct and we know when money is helping and we know when instruction is helping. That's what it means to consider these things. Some of you thought you might come here this morning and Find out how easy it's going to be to understand almsgiving. <laughs> See, the first guy in this story, the, first, the, the guy in the first story, he needed correction. He needed instruction. He needed somebody with the courage to go and rebuke him. The widow needed cash, and she should get some. Now, the unfortunate reality of Psalm 41.1 is how many Christ followers, upon discovering this verse, kind of use it as an easy out when it comes to generosity. You know, Psalm 41.1 says that we should consider the poor. So I've been considering this situation for about 20 years, and I'm still not quite ready to help out. 
That's kind of been my experience, unfortunately. You see, the curse of sin gets us every time. That's the curse of sin. It gets us coming and it gets us going. Yeah, the verse cautions us to, to consider the comprehensive nature of almsgiving. That is true. But my experience is that we 21st century Christians tend to err on the side of tight rather than on the side of loose. And I'll tell you, I would rather err on the side of loose. I would rather err on the side of grace than law. And here you go. Some of you are going to freak out when I say this. It's just money. You can always go and make some more. It's not like somebody's taken a day from you, which you can't get back. It's just money. Our desire is to do not only what is just, but also to be a part of correcting injustices. And so that means both sides of this. So what might the Bible have to say about that? Well, let's look at Amos. Amos is a prophet. He's a prophet in about 750 B.C. He's a prophet to Israel, the northern kingdom. Israel, the northern kingdom, is about to be judged by God through the, uh, uh, the tool of the Assyrians coming in in 722 and sacking Israel and destroying it. And so Amos goes to God's people by God's call, and he tries to send them a message of repentance. He tries to warn them about what's happening. The Israelites had become fat and happy. They were, they were wealthy and they were doing well, and so they believed they were blessed by God as a result of that. But Amos goes to them and says, no, God has a different message for you. This is what God says. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. What's the day of the Lord? The day of the Lord is when God is going to come and judge God's enemies and the enemies of the people of God, and the people of Israel couldn't wait for that to happen. And God's saying, hmm, bad idea to wish this judgment to come. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. And then listen to this line. This is beautiful poetic writing. It's as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. That's what you're asking for. Or a man goes into a house and leans his hand against the wall and a serpent bites him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? And then he gets down to brass tacks. He says, listen, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me, God, your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, to the melody of your harps, I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. You see, the theme of Amos is not just justice, but it's the universal justice of God. In other words, we would say it this way. It's really good to, be, to believe in God, and it's really good to be God's people, but for those of us who do believe in God and who are God's people, one of our blind spots is that we're sure we're in the clear when God's justice and judgment comes and that it's only going to fall on other people, people who are much badder than we are. I like to make up words, I know. But this book has a lot to say about how God will not just judge the enemies of God's people on the day of the Lord, but also those who are sure that they're in God's camp but really don't believe it. And they need to heed the message of God as well. The Israelites thought that they were blessed because of their amazing success and wealth. In reality, they had walked away from God. And so the day of the Lord was going to be an unpleasant time for them as well. 
That's the message of Amos, to call God's people to repentance in a time when they didn't think they needed repentance. Their day of the Lord was coming by, the way, by way of the Assyrians. The wealth that many in Israel had built had become an idol and a curse in their lives. And the wealth that many of them had built, the Israelite elites had built, had built on the backs of oppressing the poor and the under-resourced. They had exploited people in order to make the wealth that they had. And so God is calling his people to repent and for justice and righteousness to flow. Real justice and real righteousness. So what do those words mean in verse 24? Justice means that the strong advocate for, care for, and protect the weak and disadvantaged. And the word righteousness means acts of kindness, charity, and generosity. That word righteousness means almsgiving. We looked at Matthew chapter 6 last week. Jesus talked about acts of righteousness. He said, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy. See? Acts of righteousness, almsgiving. God sees giving as a characteristic of justice and of correcting injustices. But again, let's make sure we have a full picture here. Justice, for the most part in Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, when we see that word justice, what it's talking about is, is it means to reduce pain, to right a wrong, and to reverse unfair social structures. That's what justice would mean. The majority of Scripture on justice and giving would be in that vein, that we are called to jump in and to give and to help. But sometimes justice and righteousness means putting a shovel in somebody's hand and telling them to quit whining and get to work. Sometimes that's what justice and righteousness means. It means to instruct and to rebuke and confront. When I was a kid, I started to hear about this um, concept from my friends called an allowance, where parents would give their kids money every week. And so I went to my mom and I said, hey man, You've been holding out. I didn't say it exactly like that, but it was like, hey, you've been holding out on me. You know, what's this allowance thing? And she said, well, if you're ready for the allowance thing, here's the deal. It's an allowance based on some of the stuff that you're going to do around the house to help me and to help the family. Well, my friends hadn't told me any of that. I thought you just got money, okay? And so it's mom's way of saying, here's a shovel. Quit whining and complaining and get to work. you got to contribute here. Paul tells this to Timothy in his, let, his first letter to Timothy, chapter 5. He says, command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. He's saying even somebody who doesn't know God and doesn't know justice and doesn't know righteous, even they have common sense enough that they got to work, that they got to do something. See, again, when we read the Bible, we read it to be in relationship and, and, and to not just memorialize it. The Bible is the comprehensive story of God's salvation of his people through his grace, his love, and his, his mercy. Well, let's press on towards the finish. Matthew 25. And the interesting thing about Matthew 25, the passage that Chad read earlier, 
is that if it weren't for Genesis chapter 3 and original sin in the fall, we wouldn't even need chapter 25 of Matthew, verses 31 through 40. Here's what Jesus says. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you, you as a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. These verses make absolutely no sense if Genesis 3 never happened. Because the generosity would have never been reversed into the curse of greed. But he comes along now and says, our bent is toward withholding. Our bent is toward suspicion. Our bent is toward hoarding. We need to be generous. The curse made these verses necessary. These acts of service and generosity are in grateful response for what Jesus has already done for us at the cross. So who are the least of these specifically? Well, First of all, there's the righteous poor. And I know, you say, what do you mean by the righteous poor? Well, the truth is, is that there are unrighteous poor and there are righteous poor. The guy in my first story was an unrighteous poor person. He was shucking and jiving and deceiving and, and, and filled with vice rather than virtue. But there are righteous poor, people who, who legitimately need help, people who have been oppressed, people who have been marginalized, People who are working hard but can't seem to get anywhere. There are also unrighteous rich and righteous rich. And we understand that. There are all these little categories, but we would say the, the righteous poor. We'd say widows, prisoners, refugees. See, that word sojourners that has come up a couple of times this morning, in our day and age, we would say refugees. Orphans, permanently disabled. Here's my new clothes. It's 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. It's this letter that, that John, the writer of the gospel, and the apostle of Jesus writes. And he writes this, By this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. This is John saying our big idea. The ultimate almsgiver is Jesus. We know what love is because of what Jesus did on the cross. And so we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Because Jesus is the ultimate almsgiver, we can also be almsgivers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word and talk, but in deed and truth. Let me pray. We'll move into our time of response. Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth, and we thank you that you call us, but you also confront us where we are. 
and help us to understand the curse that we live under and the fact that we need to be generous and we need to be caring and we need to be compassionate. We need to be patient and we need to be willing to enter into relationship, not only with you but with others, to be a part of community and to get into the mess and the soup. That's what you call us to do. And so, God, I pray that you would empower us to do that, that we would see the great almsgiver for who he is, that he's our savior and our deliverer. And because of that, we can live a life that is, that is going to bring you glory because you are going to glorify us in the end. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.